as we have been walking through this book over the last couple of weeks, I found it, I found it really interesting the amount of space that Paul gives in this letter uh, written to fellow Christians, specifically to remind them of who they used to be before they became Christians. As we've seen, Paul has a couple of purposes for doing so. We, we talked firstly about how he reminded them of their old identity in order that they might praise God for his kindness or his grace that's being extended to them. All right, so he, he reminds them of, uh, like in chapter two, he reminds them of the danger that, they in, that they're in, how they were enemies of God who deserve nothing but God's wrath, righteous wrath against them eternal, future, conscious torment, suffering under the wrath of God for all that they have done as their wage, what they have earned. But God, who's rich and abounding in steadfast love, intervened and saved them for his glory and our great good, praise God, as he saved them. So, so, so to, to excite their thankfulness to God, he reminds them of who they used to be in God's great kindness. So they would, they would have this, this heart that, that praises God for what he's done in and through them. He also reminds them of who they used to be in order to promote unity within the life of the church, because all Christians have the same story. Right? That's, that's the whole reason you're united with one another, is the simple fact that you both have been born again by the Spirit. And you're like, oh, you're my brother. You're my sister. Hello. I'm now born into a new family, right? So, so he reminds them of who they used to be so that they would remember that the, the foundation of their unity is built in and through the gospel, God's great kindness given to both of them. They're in this new family. We also talked about how there's no distinctions, remember, between Jews and Gentiles any longer. Those walls of hostility have been torn down. So there's, there's not the, the haves and the haves nots, the, the first-class Christians and the second-class Christians. Nope, we're, we're all now in Christ. Those two old men are dead. Now we are one new man in Christ. So he reminds them of who they used to be so that they might have unity in the church. And now in the command to put off certain things and to put on other things that Paul just gave, he brings up who they used to be for the very fact that he wants to juxtapose who they are right now. Right? They were at one time a people who were at war with God in how they thought and what they desired in their hearts and then how they walked that out in their everyday lives, right? as we talked about last week. But now that they become Christians, everything about them is drastically different. They have been born again. Their minds have been renewed. They've, they've had that, that uh, heart transplant that we, that we talked about last week so that now their hearts are soft to the things of God and they have a different way, a new way of living. We are now citizens of this brand new kingdom with Jesus as our king. And we are all now children in God's household with God the Father as our father. And, and we're called now, as his kids, to live like it. I don't know what your house was like growing up. My dad would say, Boswell household, that doesn't fly. And I knew what that meant. You know what I mean? I only are doing that. Uh, in the same way, God looks at us and says, that ain't flying, man. That's who you used to be. That's old you. The old you, dead and gone. You're new. You're a new you. And so all of this, by the way, is set up for our flourishing as his people anyway. Right? They're not mean laws or expectations given to us by an overbearing father. They are these, these, hey, life works better. I created you, designed you to live this way, and it's for your 
good. So don't do that. Do this. So Paul reminds them of who they used to be as Christians so that they might put off their old selves, which belong to their former way of life that is corrupt with sinful desires, and they would be renewed by the Spirit and put on their new selves. Thus now they are to give themselves, therefore, to walking in a new manner of life, to walk in a way that's consistent with what they profess with their mouths and what they've experienced in their hearts. However, I want us to be really careful because what Paul is not saying, he is not saying that when we became Christians, we never have evil thoughts, desires, or actions ever again. No, he's not saying you, you never have those ever, ever, ever. No, he's writing to Christians. He's telling them to put off these things and to put on these things. So the putting off and the putting on is meant to demonstrate to these Christians there's a way you can live as a Christian where you're living in your old way of life. Don't live like that anymore. Rather, put on this way. Live this way. This is like putting off and putting on clothes, something that we do all the time, right? Like you come in dirty from shoveling or me like taking care of chickens or whatever it is that it is for you. Uh, you, you, get, you get all dirty and you take those clothes off. They're disgusting. You take a shower, new clothes, right? You don't put on the old ones. That's gross, right? Sitting on the couch with that junk all over you. Nuh-uh, that's nasty. You put it all off. You put on the new. That's what we are called to do as Christians. This is, this is what we are called and empowered by God to do every single day as we grow in holiness, it's something that all Christians must give ourselves to, this daily renewal, this daily putting off of these things, putting on these things. A way that we also call that is this thing called repentance. Right? We're convicted over these things. We repent of it. We ask God for forgiveness, and we say, not going that way anymore. I'm now going this way. Right? We, we put off those things. We put on this new life. So this life of repentance, asking God and others for forgiveness when we fail to live as we ought and we fail to desire as we ought and we fail to walk as we ought. That's what marks us as Christians. We repent of our sin, believing in the finished work of Jesus in our place anyway, because the only reason that we have a right relationship with God anyway is because Jesus was perfect in our place. He's perfect in his mind, perfect in his desires, perfect in his actions. I mean, he is the God man. Uh, and so he lives in, in, in perfect unity with God the Father and lived out the life we should have lived, but then stood condemned in our place, suffering the wrath of the Father for our wrong thoughts and wrong desires and wrong ways of, of living, right? And, and so, so even in our repentance, we're remembering, oh, nope, I'm not, I'm not declared innocent before God because of what I do, no, I, I am, I'm only declared right before God because of my faith in what Jesus has done. That, that's why we're allowed to come to the table. Right? That, that's what births us into this new family. And then in this new family, it's, it's all right, this is how we live now, all right? This, this, the rules of the kingdom, the rules of the family, this is how we now ought to live. And our life is, is full of these things. And this is important because the Ephesians have all this kind of cultural baggage when they became Christians. We began to talk about that last week. A lot of idol worship going on in their city. Lots of, lots of things they would need to repent of, just like us. Just like us. Do you remember when you first became a Christian? You first repented and believed upon Jesus? I was thinking about the Ephesians and again this past week as I was getting ready for today. And there's, there's a way that seems naturally right to them in their thoughts. But it's that kind of way of thinking that is in complete opposition to God. And it's those thoughts they need to take off. They put on new ones so they can honor God with their minds. They've also been conditioned as a culture to love and desire evil things. 
I know it's a strange thing. Can you imagine living in a culture where you are taught to give yourself over to the passions of your flesh and be ruled and mastered by whatever desires and emotions and sensualities you might just feel? You probably can. Uh, you probably, that's right. Thank you, honey. Uh, you, you probably can. That's right. And, and so in the same way, there, there's all these natural desires and urges that, that they need to say, nope, nope, I, I can't. I can't be ruled by that anymore. Rather, I'm ruled by Christ. And so I will submit to what he says for my desires and longings, right? So that's a wild way of, of just U-turn in a different direction. And so they need to walk in a new way of life. They, they need to live their everyday lives in a manner worthy of the calling that they've been called in such a way that their lives are this gracious response to God, praising him and thanking him for all that he has done for them in Christ. And that's what this section of the book is all about. This call to put off who they once were, this well-worn path in the snow. And now they're to put on their new identities. They're to walk in a new way of life. And that's what Paul now turns his pastoral attention to, to reminding these Christians of the upward call of God to walk in holiness and how this is part of the daily task of what it means to live out their new identity as God's daughters and God's sons. And so for today, we aren't going to be able to cover all the verses that Annabelle read for us, but I'm praying that in the many decades that we will have together, Lord willing, I'm banking on 40, so I'll be 75. Yeah, I'll be 75. Not 40 decades, 40 years, four decades. And then I'll pass the reins off to some young buck that can talk much faster than me. And... And at that point, uh, goodness gracious. But for now, what we're going to do, we're going to focus on three of very specific ways that we're called as Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And I, I chose these three because I was reading through and praying through them, thinking about our church, and I think about Paul's, what he's doing in, in through the life of this, in the life of this church in Ephesus. These three things, I was reading through those, I was like, man, if, if, we had, if these three things, if the Lord does this in our church, all the other things that are on this list are just going to naturally just lead that way. Uh, and so, so we're going to talk about three kind of main things. Um, and the, the, here they are. So we're going to be talking about how we demonstrate our faith by speaking the truth, verse 25, being angry, but not sinning. That one's hard. Verse 26 to 27. And then using our words to strengthen one another, verse 29. So we're going to start by seeing the very first command, which is to speak the truth. Look with me at verse 25. Therefore, it says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth as neighbor, for we are members one of another. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth as neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, the first time I didn't emphasize it, the second time I emphasized it so that you could see a little bit clearer. Because when you're reading it to yourself, you're like, what am I putting off? What am I putting on here? But, but hopefully in what I just said, you're able, to, you're able to tell a little bit more. What am I putting away? What am I putting on? And the first thing we say, so what are we putting off? We're to put off falsehood, right? Let, let every put this off, having put that away, speak the truth. But what we notice even in that is the first thing is not necessarily a command like do this, but rather we notice it's something that has already been put away, right? Having put away falsehood. It's, it's in the simple past tense. And the thing that we are to put away is falsehood or literally the word used here is the lie. Having put away falsehood, it is falsehood, it is the lie. So this verse therefore could read, therefore having put away the lie, let each one of you speak the truth. 
which is a nice little play on words. Like you put away the lie, speak the truth. Right? So this lie is the opposite of this truth. Now, what have we seen about the truth so far in the book of Ephesians? Well, we've seen a whole lot, um, but, uh, but, but the one other time where this specific word is used in the book of Ephesians is found in uh, chapter one, verse 13. And there we see that the gospel, this good news of forgiveness of sins available through Jesus alone, it's called the word of truth. Just talking about the gospel of their salvation. Okay, so if that's what the truth is, then we might wonder, well, what is the lie? If the truth is the gospel, then what is the lie that are then put off? This word, unlike the word truth, isn't used again or previously in the book of Ephesians. But it is used by Paul in Romans chapter 1, which we talked about last week. In fact, Romans 1.25, it refers to the lie of idolatry. The lie of idolatry. Paul writes about this, about our natural state of, as enemies of God, and he explains, he explains how we are those who exchange the truth of God in our natural state before Christ made us alive. We are those who exchange the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. So according to Romans, the lie is the suppression of truth, the truth, that leads hearts to worship false gods rather than the only true and living God. And, and that's, isn't that the essence of what we've been seeing in the book of Ephesians anyway? They'd be putting off these lies and rather to be walking in the truth of the gospel. And they are those who are no longer going to the temple of Artemis, Diana, this fertility goddess. So literally they have put away the lie and they are now believing and walking in the truth, the truth of Christ, and put away the lie of idolatry. So, so having put away, therefore, the lie of idolatry and put on the word of truth by faith in Jesus, they are now, therefore, to speak the truth. They're to speak it. They're to share this truth that they have now come to believe. And who are they to share it with? Well, firstly, they are to share it with their neighbor, with their neighbor, a word that means your friend or any other, literally, it means your friend or any other person. It's pretty like all sweeping. It, it makes you, you just wish we had a parable of Jesus. You know, who is my neighbor? Oh, wait, we do. Your neighbor is everyone, right? Your neighbor is everyone. Your neighbor is any other person, irrespective of nation or religion with whom we live or who we chance to meet, the answer is everyone. That's who our neighbor is. So what Paul is firstly saying to the Ephesians and by extension to us is that our faith is not therefore to be a private faith, rather it is one that is to be proclaimed, shared, spoken, and offered to those around us. Just as it was to be offered to the fellow citizens in Ephesus, their family members and coworkers and clients. So the idea here is just as they used to go about sharing and speaking the lie of idolatry, joking and talking about sensual things and inviting one another to celebrate and to worship at the temple of Diana together, now they are renewed in their minds and their renewed mouths are now to not do what they used to do, participating in the lie, but rather they are to share the truth, the gospel of their salvation with everyone and to invite them, as Matt's prayer just said a moment ago, to 
explore Jesus, to read the Bible with them, to promote holiness with their mouths. Whereas once their mouth wasn't doing that, now their mouths are to do that. They are to share the truth of people who are still living in the lie. Because that's how they became Christians in the first place, right? Someone shared the truth with them. They were just boot scooting around, going to the temple, worshiping Diana. And someone came up and said, you're believing a lie. That is a demon. That's not a God who can save you. Don't go there anymore. That's a lie. And they're like, what? That's not true. And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit convicted them of sin. And they're like, that is true. I shouldn't do that anymore. What was I thinking? And they're like, the same thing we were all thinking, man. We were just caught up in the futility of our minds, but now we have a new mind in Christ, so now live a different way. And so they did. And so that's what happened to them as they became Christians, and now their great joy as Christians is to share the truth with others because they don't want people to stay in the lie. Because as you're in the lie, you are still a child of wrath, deserving God's judgment for your many sins. They don't want people to stay there. Rather, they want to speak the truth to them, invite them to know the truth. So that's firstly what he says. But then Paul has this interesting little line added into the conversation, which says, for we are members of one another. And what I think is happening here is that it isn't only important that we are speaking the word of truth, the gospel of salvation to those who are outside of the faith. Rather, it's equally as important that we are speaking the truth of God to one another as Christians, that we remind one another of truth. See, because it's through our mutual presence in one another's lives as we share the truth of God's word that we are preserved and persevered in the midst of a godless society. So we, we are, we're kind of like, we're kind of like a warming hut in the middle of a frosty Manitoba winter. You know what I mean? Like a nice warming hut. Places people come in together as, as believers and we're just warmed by the truth of God's word from one another's mouths. We're, we're corrected in things. We're, we're trained in things. We're warmed up by God's word. So then we may take that warmth out into the midst of a whole lot of situations that need the light of Christ. Friends, we are to be speaking the truth of God to one another and God has placed you in the lives of people around you in the life of our church that you might stoke their affections with this good news of Christ, that their hearts might be preserved and persevered, that their thoughts might come under the scrutiny of God's word. And they're like, oh, I was believing a lie. That's not true. Or so, so that their affections and desires are like, oh, I was feeling that and it's wrong. Or the way they were living, they're like, oh, I shouldn't have been doing that, man. You're right. Thus, thus we preserve one another and help persevere one another simply by speaking the truth to one another as God's people. And the call, therefore, is to be a member of one another. You see, they're in this, they're in this body together. Right? We've talked about that a number of times so far. They're, they're, these, those are gone, now they're in one body in Christ. And when you're doing well in, in your body, all of your members are doing well. You broke a toe, your whole body is just out of commission. That's, that's the one thing, just, you're gone. Your right arm, you're like, ah, it's just, it's broken. Uh, but but in, in the body of Christ, when, when the right arm is broken, we're all broken. We all need one another. Anytime anything wrong happens, it's like the broken toe. Everything halt, right? Or like you get a really bad flu, you're just in bed for days. But we are to care about one another and to help one another. See, when you're, you are doing well as a Christian, believing the truth, we're all doing well. But when viruses attack one member of the household, 
everybody gets it. You know what I mean? Everybody, just domino effect. And God's prescription to help our health as Christians is the truth of his word. His word alone protects us from being tossed around by every wind and wave of doctrine. His word alone protects us from the lie of idolatry. His word alone convicts us of our wrong thoughts and wrong motives and desires and teaches us how we ought to repent of sin, trusting in Jesus' perfect righteousness in our place. And then it's his word which tells us how we ought to repent and walk in a new manner of living and thinking and feeling. See, brother and sister, this is part of your God-given role, actually, as a member of the trails. And if you aren't a member, then it's a good encouragement for you to become a member either here or at another church so that you might live out this identity that God has called you to with folks around you, that you've invited them to speak truth into their lives. There's nothing more awkward than you trying to speak truth into someone's life, and they're like, uh, I did not invite you to do that. Right? That's what happens if you have small kids and you're at the grocery store and somebody just says something to you, and you're like, excuse me? I don't know you. Right? That has definitely happened to you. Uh, it's awkward. It's wild, man. And in the same way, we, because we, we are members of one another, we give permission to one another to speak into one another's lives so that we might live out the identity that God has called us to with people around us. See, we're birthed into a new family with brothers and sisters, and part of our God-given role in this family is to care for the souls of those around us because we are our brother's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. It's our responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ, as members one of another, to care about the souls of one another enough to speak the truth of God in love that our brother or sister might turn from various sins and trust and believe upon Jesus and upon God's word. And we need people in our lives like that as well. We're supposed to speak into their lives. They're supposed to speak into ours. This is how we grow as Christians. This is how we grow in godliness and put off our Gentile ways and put on our new identity as Christians. And I wonder if you've ever realized and embraced that this is part of your job as a Christian. Most churches don't talk about that, but this is our role, actually, in one another's lives as a Christian, which doesn't mean, by the way, that all you do is get together and just talk about God's word, right? No, we, we talk about lots of things. We talk about the Bombers, who are going to win today. We talk about, we talk about the Jets, who are never going to win. We, we talk about weather and politics and family and raising kids and marriage stuff. We talk about our job. We talk about fishing. We talk about lots of things. But also, as we are talking for one another and loving one another, our aim is that we also ought to love one another enough to maintain unity as a church as well, to speak the truth in love to one another. And that means sometimes we ask one another really uncomfortable questions. I mean, really uncomfortable ones, because we love one another. And this is what it means to be a part of a family and to love people, to listen and pray together. See, we don't only talk about spiritual things as members of a church, but we also aren't pagans. No, we're Christians, which means that we do ask questions and we bring the truth of God's word into conversations and we pray for and with one another. As we discussed in small groups last week, one of the great things about being committed to one another in a local church is that we get to see the lives of other people who are at all different places in our walk with the Lord. Right? Some of you might have just become a Christian in the last couple of weeks or months or years, and you're still trying to figure out how to be a Christian who is single or dating or married or married with kids. And others of us have been walking around these roads a little bit longer. And so we are good gifts to one another who see different things from God's word in different ways. And we speak the truth to one another. And so if there is another brother or sister, even here in our church, that you notice they are struggling in an area, marriage, kids, work, something else, 
If you notice there's something going on in their life, then that is probably God's little nudge to you that you have a wonderful opportunity to disciple someone. It's not someone else's job if you notice it. It's yours. Congratulations. You get to walk alongside of them, read a book with them, pray for them, help them, disciple them, bring the truth of God's word to them. If you see them struggling and you're able to serve them and love them well, that they might grow as Christians, praise God, sacrifice time and energy, help them out, love them, serve them. Use your gifts to build them up. And as you do, God will use them in your life to show you areas of your life that you aren't as strong in either. It's this beautiful reciprocity of things where they see things that and they'll say, well, yeah, I like, that's good. What about this in your life? And you're like, oh, <laughs> that's the beauty of being connected to one another in a local church. It's wonderful and messy and beautiful. And that's what Paul is picking up here is that we are to be kind of like that faithful city in Zechariah chapter eight, faithful city, which can be a little homework for you later if you wanna, if you're a keener and you really wanna study but in Zechariah 8, what we see is there's this idyllic picture of God dwelling in the midst of his people and us worshiping him rightly and living out our identity in such a way that we're speaking the truth to neighbors and to one another. And this is our call to be a people who speak the truth uh, of God to a world that desperately needs it and to one another, as we desperately also need to be reminded of God's truth all the time. So if you have put off the lie, then speak the truth with firstly your neighbor and with one another. In this first verse, what we see is a pattern that's going to be picked up in every single one of the commands that Paul gives us about how we ought to walk. See, everything that we read today in these scriptures are both personal commands, things that we must do with body, church body implications. Church body implications. Personal commands with church body implications. Because if we don't speak the truth to one another, we are either speaking lies to one another or we are speaking nothing to one another which goes against the command to speak the truth. So we are walking in disobedience if the body is not being built up as it could be if we were doing what God is calling us to do. Friends, our church will not be unified around God's word and we will not be built up as we could be if you are not speaking the truth of God's word into the lives of people around you. We will not be. A couple of months ago, Nino had a really great sermon about this, how we are conditioned from birth to think that our sin only impacts us and nobody else, right? We, we like, this is just my private thing. It impacts nobody, right? Your addictions, your proclivities, your evil longings and sensual desires, we think only impact us. But Paul's whole point is in this verses is that that is a lie. It's not true. Your sin impacts the entire church body. And what Paul is saying here is that walking and thinking and loving like Gentiles is leading to the body of Christ being harmed. We are not unified as a church because of it. And the first place that we see that is that when we don't speak the truth about God and his ways to one another, we are harming one another. We're harming the unity that we're supposed to have as a church. When we suppress the truth for a lie, we are harming others. This is why bad theology is not only dangerous, but it also kills. It leads, as we see in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, for people to show up at the gates of heaven and the Lord Jesus to look at them and say, I never knew you. See, when we stand by and don't defend the truth, as we let someone believe lies about God, 
When we let another Christian believe false doctrines about God so that we can have false unity, it's meaningless. And when we affirm evil desires and longings in others, when we just affirm whatever is there, when we do that, instead of bringing them to the word of God and bringing the truth to bear in a loving way, we are not loving our brothers and sisters at all. We are hating them. We're wanting them to stay in their lives. And those lives are like a virus in their soul. And thinking about remaining in harmful things then, next thing we're talking about, Paul's next word is especially poignant for us. He writes this, he says in verse 26 and 27, he says, be angry, there it is, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Angry, but don't sin. Don't let sin go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, in this discussion on anger, the very first thing I want us to note is that Paul doesn't condemn anger as an emotion or feeling or response, right? Notice there, he doesn't say, don't ever get angry in an angry tone. He didn't, he didn't say that, which I think is important because the goal of Christian maturity is not to get to a place where you're stoic and untouched by feelings and emotions. Some people will tell you that's the goal. No, it's not. Godliness is not demonstrated in a lack of emotions, not only that, but there are also very appropriate times for anger, right? We see Jesus get angry at the hardness of heart of the religious leaders in Mark chapter three, verse five, for example. And we know that God the Father also is said to have great anger or a great nose against everyone who forsakes him. We see that in Ezra eight twenty two, And then we see that his anger burned, literally his nose burned hot against all the unrighteousness of his people as they forsook him in Deuteronomy 29, 27. So we naturally know that though. We naturally know not all anger is bad, right? For example, that's why we still call some kind of anger what? Righteous anger, right? We, we, so we get, we get that. So, so it, it is an emotion. It's an emotion that we have and, and it's okay. It's right even. It's just to be angry from time to time, right? Like angry when people twist the truth and teach others to do the same. Angry when people take upon themselves the title of pastor yet give themselves to telling lies about the character and nature of God. Anger when we see people being abused physically, emotionally, or psychologically. Friends, anger sometimes is the best and most appropriate response. It's a right and a godly emotion when we consider the persecution of the church and things like modern day slavery, as well as all kinds of injustices that go around us governmentally and are done to people as they are exploiting legal loopholes and get away with gross injustice. Anger is a good emotion to have. So don't mistake anger itself as a sin. It is not. Anger in of itself is not a sin. Right? So when you drop a hammer on your toe, and you're angry, that's appropriate. That mug hurts, man. Or kids, when your brother or sister, when they hit you, anger is an okay response. Like, why'd you hit me, man? Like, when you get hit, ugh, that's, a, that's an okay response. But not all anger is righteous. And far too often, we think our anger is justified when the majority of time, it is not. And the depths of the human heart just kind of blur these lines all the time. So be angry at appropriate times and for appropriate reasons, but there is an admonishment here because anger is a little bit like fire, right? It is, is extremely destructive and it can lead quickly into sin. So Paul writes, be angry and do not sin. And I think that's where the rub is, right? Like be angry, but don't sin. 
Like most of the time you see anger, it's because people are sinning in some way, right? Like, so it's like, be angry, but don't sin. But that, that's where the rub is, right? So back to you dropping a hammer on your toe, and then your anger bubbles over into some very unholy words or anger at other people. Why did they leave that hammer there? Right? Quickly, quickly it can go from just anger over, oh, I'm hurt, to oh, I'm sinning. Right? Or if your sibling hits you and you use your words to try to hurt them back or you use your strength to hurt them back, this never happens in the Boswell household. But if it did, uh, if it did, this could be a conversation we had on the car on the way here. Or if a friend betrays you and they dream up all kinds of ways, or you, you dream up all kinds of ways that you're going to get them back and destroy their reputation because of what they did to you might be fuming mad. And so what might be right from time to time to be angry, what Paul is saying is that our anger is kind of like a gateway drug. It can lead us into all kinds of sin. So we need to be very careful. Don't let your anger blind you so that you sin against others. So while anger itself is an emotion that might have, might have sinful or unsinful roots, what we see is that anger quickly leads to a lot of destructive sins. So Paul says that it will be destructive to keep it. So we need to strive to put it off really quickly. And that's what that next line is about. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Now, when you read this, it's important to note that it is not a literal command to be wielded by you or someone else in anger. I'm gonna say that again. This is very important. This is not a literal command to be wielded by you or someone else against you in your anger. It's not a literal command. It is a figurative expression. Now, if you wonder why this is important for you, here's why. So let's say you are a Christian and you start arguing with your spouse or roommate, family member one day. Now, if you get into a discussion and you become angry really early in the evening, does that mean you have to resolve your anger and just quit being angry, put it away right before the sun goes down? What if you get home from work and the sun has already set? It's past 5 p.m. because it's winter. And you get angry and it's already dark. And the sun's already set. Score. Right? Does that mean you have 24 hours to be angry? Or what if you live in a part of Canada where the sun is up five months a year? No darkness. Great. Those five months, I'm just angry. Come winter time or come summertime or wintertime, all right, then I'll, I'll repent then before it gets dark for forever. Uh, right? How does this work? No, see, that's not Paul's point. He's speaking figuratively here. He's talking about how we shouldn't let anger just simmer on the stove of our hearts and minds. Rather, it should be dealt with as soon as possible. So so don't start an argument at 11 p.m., therefore, and try to resolve it before you go to sleep. This is important if you are a younger married folk. That will go terribly, let me tell you. I know that because in my earlier days of marriage, this would happen. Something would arise, we need to talk about it, but then it would be so late. And then what happens is you start making no sense at all Never happened to you? You're like, and then you're like, all of a sudden you're like, why are we fighting? I don't know, but I'm gonna win, right? So, so then just anger just goes and then you get tired, then you get hangry and life doesn't go well for you. And so what, what Paul's words here are, are a good rule to live by. I cannot let the sun go down in my anger, but, but sometimes what, what, what we need to do, especially if it's late at night, is, is we need to uh, call for a ceasefire, right? In, in the morning light, maybe be able to address that issue so that you can see things a whole lot clearer. 
So if you, you, you're there, maybe sometime in the next week or two, or as Christmas comes up, sometime around there, if you're in a fight near the end of the evening and you kind of hit that wall, for us, we've talked about that's usually around 10 p.m. After 10 p.m., we're done. If you hit that wall, here would be a suggestion for you. And it's this, affirm your love for one another and then resolve to pick things back up tomorrow. So the goal here is that you just don't let it fester. And, and the whole reason about this, Siri, uh, wherever she is, the whole reason about that uh, is that, that Paul warns us is that we have an enemy out there. Give no opportunity to the devil, which, by the way, isn't his name. If you ever heard him referred to as the devil, it's not his name, but rather it distinguishes what he's like. See, the devil here means a deceiver, a false accuser, a slanderer. And what we see here, and then also in Ephesians chapter six, is that Satan is working and scheming against us. And one of the ways that, that we, we see this is that we walk through spiritual warfare is that we become so blinded by anger through our sin. And as a result, when we're angry, we start to believe lies, don't we? We start to, to harbor evil desires and longings. We, we start to read onto them what we think they're saying or what they, we thought their intention was, and they do the same to us, and then things get much worse, leading us then to walk in disobedience and into sin in a manner which is marked by unholiness. I mean, when we are angry, we, don't we, think wrong thoughts we maliciously accuse one another of evil intentions? And don't we feel wrong emotions? They don't love me. And then don't we walk in really destructive ways of living? See, friends, we have an enemy who is a deceiver, who is scheming against us, and he wants us to do us harm. And the accuser is kind of just like pulling back and just shooting these flaming darts, as we see in Ephesians chapter six. He wants to kill us. And through our anger, we are tempted towards all kinds of sin that will eventually destroy our unity in our marriages and families and friend groups and even our church. So Paul wants us to be aware of that. He wants us to be on guard in our anger because sin is crouching at the door, just like it was with Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter four. And even if you start off with righteous reasons for anger, the anger can, can very quickly still turn into righteous indignation and resentment and pride. So this is why anger is so destructive. Anger can seem noble at first, and yet it still leads into all kinds of sin, and it can destroy us and those around us. I don't know about you, it's incredibly important for me to continue walking and praying and asking God to help me in this way, because I know how, how quickly I sin when I'm angry. I, I sin in my, in my thoughts. I sin in my heart. I sin in my desires. I sin in my actions. What about you? Same? Same. See, see when, when you're angry, I want you to think about how, how are you tempted to sin? This would be a great question to ask one another. I, I may ask your spouse later. I mean, how, are you, how are you tempted to sin, actually, when we, when we, when we get angry and fight for one another? People maybe that you're discipling, ask them this question. This would be, this would be really great. Do, do you use daggers to tear the other person down? Like your words are just... Daggers coming at them? Do you, do you use your strength or your personality against someone? Do you tower over them and push your will upon them, either, either physically or with your personality? Think for a moment about, about just all the sins that come as a result of anger. I said a minute ago, it's like a gateway drug, and I think it's true because anger leads to all kinds of evil that just spring from our minds and our hearts, and 
visible through our actions. Throughout the years, I have seen anger lead to devastating results. I've seen anger lead to pornography and affairs, social media addictions, bulimia, excessive eating, excessive working out, alcohol, weed, a host of other destructive behaviors. Where, where do you go in your anger? Where does it lead you? And I've seen personally how anger has destroyed marriages, families, friendships, and churches. As people just night after night, day after day, they don't put off anger. They aren't quick to put it off from themselves. Rather, their lives become marked by it. Do you know people like that? Their lives just marked by anger. They become consumed with it. That then leads to them being embittered. They, they fuel their anger by just replaying tapes in their minds of old conversations, getting more and more angry over every situation. And that anger leads to more and more sin as you then become holding grudges, trying to get back at one another in various ways, scheming and plotting evil towards one another and refusing to seek reconciliation. And in this, we began to walk in a manner that is much more akin to the devil and not God. So we need to be warned. We need to be warned, brothers and sisters, because anger isn't what we are to be known for as God's people. Anger is not to mark our lives. Anger can devastate your life. It's just like playing with fire. It's true. It's capable of just burning everyone and everything down around you. I think that's why James, in his book, uh, he encourages us to be slow to anger, imitating the Lord himself, as we saw in Exodus, for I don't know if you remember that from Exodus, but God is slow to anger. He's long-nosed. Remember, he's abounding in steadfast love. And so we are, as we are renewed in the spirit of our minds, we are to put on our new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are to imitate him and how he is slow to anger. And then when we become angry, we need to be on guard not to sin, examining our thoughts and minds and desires, trying to figure out why we're angry. And then the goal is to not sin in our anger, and then we are to try to put off anger as quickly as possible. Absolutely as fast as possible. So not, to not let it mark our lives, let it, let it destroy us like a house fire or like a business fire. We, we were driving home one Sunday night a couple of months ago. We saw this huge billow of smoke coming from Steinbach. We're like, what is going on? We drove closer because we wanted to see what was happening. Huge fire in a moment, gone. Friends, that could be your life. And, and anger can, can lead to that. So we need to be, therefore, slow to anger, then be angry, and then put it off. Resolve things, right? So that, that your life isn't marked by it. And the very last thing we're gonna cover today is verse 29, where Paul talks about the kinds of words that we're to put off from saying and the words we're to put on in our discussions with one another. So Paul writes, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such that is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And I think this section is one of the most appropriate things to talk about as Christians, specifically in the overall conversation in Ephesians about maintaining unity and becoming who we are as God's people, because it's with our words that we can do some of the greatest damage imaginable. We can, in a moment, just cut someone to the very core of who they are. We can, in that exact same amount of time, encourage those who are faint of heart. Isn't that amazing? You do both things. 
So the question is, what kind of speaking, therefore, ought to mark the Christian life? What kind of speaking ought to mark the life of a Christian? And we quickly see that the command from Paul here is that we are to put off corrupting talk. Let no corrupting talk come out of your minds. Now, we might not have any idea what the word corrupting means. I mean, we know about corrupted files, right? The files have been ruined. So we might be able to perceive something about what's going on here, what Paul is saying. And if we, that was where your mind went, you wouldn't be too far off the mark. In fact, were we, if we were to look up this word on blueletterbible.org, you ever been there? It's a great website, blueletterbible.org. We would see this word corrupting that is used here actually is the word that means rotten or putrefied. It is a word that has to do with fruit. It is a word in the gospels that's mainly used to describe a disease or a bad tree, right? A tree that bears bad fruit that is spoiled and ruined. And so the very picture that Paul is getting here with this word corrupting is meant to caution us about our words that we speak to one another, that our words can do one of two things. Firstly, they can build up people around us, leading to their strengthening the way that a really good fruit at a meal can invigorate us and strengthen us for the day ahead. Or they can spoil and corrupt the people around us, leading to their weakening. It's like eating really bad fruit, rotten fruit that gets into your stomach and you're in bed for a couple of days and you can do nothing, right? It just weakens you because you've been poisoned by the food. And this is exactly what our words do to one another as Christians. Our words have the ability to strengthen and nourish one another, or they have the ability to tear down and weaken one another, which is a pretty strong image to have in our minds every time we sit down to eat fruit. Maybe, uh, maybe this week, if you're sitting around the breakfast table with your kids or your spouse, or you, you go to brunch with a friend, this would be a great thing to talk about. Like, oh, I learned about fruit this past week, about how our words are kind of like fruit. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think sometimes how, how fruit can strengthen us and other times it can weaken us? That's the kind of person I want to be. How do you think I'm doing at that? But be ready for an honest answer. Uh, but it'd be great. It's important to think about our words to one another. And part of walking in this new way of living as Christians means that we're now called to put off our old selves and to strive to offer good fruit with our words to our family members and friends, coworkers, clients, and neighbors. Our words aren't to be like rotten, disgusting, evil fruit that spoils them, but rather it's meant to strengthen one another with the very words that we choose and the words that we choose not to use. So the aim every time we open our mouths as Christians is to, now that we are in Christ, consider, am I putting on my new identity by what I'm about to say, or am I putting on my old, stinky, nasty Gentile identity that I want to do away with? These words that I'm using, what are they doing in the lives of people around us? Because constantly, this is what we're doing. Every time you open your mouth and say anything, you're offering fruit to people. Every time you, you're like, well, what about social media? I'm just... I'm just doing this. Same thing, same thing. Every time you do this, every time you do this, you're offering fruit to people. You're either strengthening and building them up, tearing them down and making them weak every single time. Thus, we as Christians ought to be considering the words that we are saying. We are to speak carelessly. We are to speak carefully. And can I just take a minute and just, can I just press in a little bit more into our lives? That's all right with you. Glad you don't have fruit. You'll throw it at me. 
But I, I want to just press this in. Just, I, I think it needs to be. I, I want to think about how this might apply to the marriages in this room. I want you to think about how this applies to the words that you speak to your spouse. See, because brothers and sisters, how we speak to one another in our marriages is definitely in view here. Meaning that we aren't supposed to be offering words that are like spoiled, rotten fruit to our spouses, leading them to become weaker as a result of us speaking to them. No, no, rather our words are supposed to nourish them, build them up, strengthen them, edify them. Now, now this, this does mean there'll be times where we have to remind one another of truth, lovingly correct one another when we need to. But I wonder if we think about this. Do, do you think about your words with your spouse, that they are meant to be an opportunity to strengthen or weaken them every time you speak? We need to realize every word that we speak to our spouse is doing one of those two things. Every word you say to your husband is doing one of those two things. Every word you speak to your wife is doing one of those two things. And I wonder if you were to analyze how you talk to your spouse, or maybe if we were to ask your spouse, that would be awkward, wouldn't it? If we were to ask them how you use your words in speaking to them, what would they say? Are you someone who encourages, builds them up, and strengthens them with, with your words? Or do you tear them down? Do you belittle them? Do you weaken them? See, for some of us, somewhere along the line, we drifted into using our words that were once so beautiful and soft and sweet to this person, and we started using them to tear the other person down. If I were to tell you, if I were to go back in time before you got married and tell you, one day you're gonna use your words to tear this person down constantly. You'll be like a dripping faucet to them. Every time you open their mouth, you just weaken them with your words. You would look at me like I had nine heads. You're like, them? No, I love them. What? I'm never gonna talk to them like that. And yet here you are. It's commonplace. Your conversation is probably marked by tearing one another down and spewing hateful or vulgar things at one another, speaking like Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Brother and sister, that's not the way you learned Christ. This is not how you learned Christ. These are not the, the behaviors, the patterns of thinking and desires that, that we need to be a part of. We need to put that off. And we need to commit now that this is what we are going to be doing. This should have no place among us. This, that's old identity stuff, man. This is not who you are in Christ. So brothers, specifically, think about how you use your words in speaking to your wife. Do you strive to love her? Do you speak kindly to her? Do you try to build her up and strengthen her with your words? Recognizing her as the good gift that God gave you to steward well so that she flourishes in all that God has called her to do and to be. To do your words build her up to strengthen her when she is weak? Because let me tell you, though she is capable and strong, she desperately needs you to use your words to strengthen her. 
Do you try to do that with your words? Or are you withholding? Falsely believing that she doesn't need your encouragement. Or do you do the opposite? Do you belittle her and tear her down? Brother, are your words harsh and demeaning? Do you excessively talk at her? Or are you using your words to intentionally build her up? And when you're angry with her, how do you speak to her? And how do you speak about her to others? Do you tell people how terrible she is? How, how you wish you had married someone that was kinder and nicer and less of a bother? Brothers, honor your wives with your words and give yourself to strengthening her. Sisters, the same questions apply to you as well. Are you using your words to strengthen your husband or are your words being served to him like rotten fruit that is meant to weaken him? He is a strong man, no doubt, but he needs your affirmation and encouragement. So much more than he can tell you. If he won't tell you that, just trust me. He does. He needs your affirmation and encouragement more than he can tell you. He needs to know that he is loved. He needs to know that you're on his team. He needs you to speak so that he's strengthened to, to be the man, to stand for the things that God has called him to do and to be. And you are the unique person in his life that can encourage him or flatten him. With one word, you can do one of those two things. And sister, when you're with other women, are you using your words to build up your husband in front of them? Or do you gossip about him? Do you slander and malign him to those women, mindlessly using your words to tear him down in your mind and in your heart? And what about how you talk to your husband or wife in front of your kids? Are you building them up by how you were talking to their mom or dad. Speaking of kids, I wonder about the words we use with our kids as well. Are you speaking kindly to them? Do your words build them up or are you constantly tearing them down at home or in front of others? Do you speak positively about them or do you talk negatively about them? Do you tell them how they aren't measuring up to your expectations and how you wish they would just be different? Are you celebrating who God has made them to be? Striving to love them and build them up as you speak the truth in love to them. Are you gently correcting them and using your words to strengthen their weaknesses so they can grow into godly men and women who use their words to strengthen others? So they are learning how to speak by listening to you. What kind of fruit will they produce as a result of being in your home for 18 years? And kids, aren't you listening up to me for a minute? Because this isn't just for your parents. This is for you. I want you to think about how God works through your words to strengthen and build up others around you. The first people I want you to think about are your mom and dad. Did you know that your words can strengthen and build up your mom and dad? Your words can be used by God to bolster them. When you say, oh, I love you, mom and dad. Thanks for the way that you do X, Y, or Z. You have the unique role to build them up in ways that nobody else can. You're their kid. They love you. They've changed your diaper. They love you. Your words can strengthen and encourage them. But let me tell you a secret. Being a parent, being a parent is hard work. It's very hard. I know we make it look easy. It's very hard. It's very hard. 
And you can use your words to build up our faith so that we become better parents, even by how you talk to us and about us. It's a beautiful thing. So offer good fruit to your parents, not bad fruit. Let them know how thankful you are to be their kid and for how they love you and teach you about Jesus and pray for you and spend time with you. Now, that might be pretty, pretty easy with your parents, maybe, but an even harder place to do that is with your brothers and sisters. Think about how you use your words with your brother and sister. Adults, we can think about our brothers and sisters as well. Isn't it hard to not be rude or mean with our words? What we see here is that God is calling you to use your words to serve and build and encourage and strengthen your brothers and sisters, not tear them down. And this is the same thing is true as well with our church family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need with one another, when we're spending time together, we need to be on guard over our mouths so that we are strengthening one another. Right, so in your small group and over dinners and coffees, at worship and prayer nights and preachers forums and games nights and retreats, the same goes for us. We ought to think about the words we're speaking to and about one another as church members. Be sure that we are strengthening those around us and not weakening them by the words that we are choosing to use. Friends, encourage the faint-hearted, build up the weak, confront lies so that our church can be built up in love. So church, are we using our words in such a way to be a blessing to others? Are we actively thinking about how we're using our words so that we're offering one another good fruit that strengthens or bad fruit that weakens? Are we mindlessly using words to spoil one another through coarse joking? We call them off-color jokes. And really, it's just, bad fruit that weakens them. Is that what we're doing? Or are we engaging in inappropriate discussions by not guarding our mouths? Friends, we can use our words for evil or we can use them to build one another up, to help one another grow into godly thinking and desiring and living or in ways that weaken Christian unity as we tear one another down. We need to be careful. So we ought to be careful about how we're walking. The days are evil, but we aren't to be but we are to be put on our new selves and to live out who we are in Christ, to put off those old patterns of living with the corrupt desires and instead live in a manner worthy in a way that doesn't grieve God. And this yearning for a whole, holy living to have lives that match our profession of faith is our desire as Christians. And it is the very expectation of God of what we are to give ourselves to. But as we're wrapping up, I wanna give one final word, one final word. Because we can read and think about lists like this and the temptation is that we can get incredibly discouraged. We can believe the lie that it's just the way I am. I'm just like that. I just use my words in bad ways. That's just who I am. I use my anger like that. That's just, that's just who I am. That's who you were. That's true. When you walked in the futility of your mind, that's who you were. But you're a new creation, man, if you're in Christ. The old you is dead and gone, dead and gone. New you is here. So now that we're Christians, Paul is saying that there are behaviors we need to take off, old ways of thinking and speaking and desiring and acting that aren't congruent with who we are as Christians. And throughout our lives, we will grow in our sanctification, in holy and godly living as we repent from sins. The goal is not to be perfect. Friend, if the goal was perfection, you would fail. Guaranteed. See, our, our right relationship with God isn't based on you being perfect. 
No, no, no. Our right relationship with God is based on Jesus being perfect in our place and then standing condemned for our sin. So don't, also don't see a list like this and just beat yourself over the hammer constantly like, ah, woe is me, I'm the worst. You are the worst. Admit that, repent from that, and say, Jesus, help me, and just move forward. And this is, this is what we do as Christians. We, we confront one another, we repent, we trust in the righteousness of Christ, and we say, God, help me to move forward, to live my life for your glory. And so as we're wrapping up, I just wanna encourage you that if you're looking at this list and feel discouraged, Look to Christ. He was perfect for you. Repent of what you need to. Take off those old patterns of living. Put on your new identity in Christ. Walk. And as you have many uncomfortable conversations around the trails and at home, my great aim for you, Paul's great aim for you, is that you might grow in holiness, that you might walk in a manner that is worthy, so in the same way that a surgeon has to use a scalpel to get out some nasty junk in your life so that you can be healthy and live a better life, likewise, a lot of these conversations and things are not things that I really like talking to you about. This is not the let's grow a really big church and talk about stuff like this kind of talk. This is a you need this for your growth as a Christian. Things are killing you and you need to repent of them and trust in Christ. And so that's what I will now call us to. So let's have a moment where uh, I will pray for us. And then I'd love for you just to spend some time as the band comes up and, and leads us in one last song to do some business with the Lord and maybe with one another. If there's things that you need to repent of to one another, do it. If you've spoken in a way that is tearing down another Christian in this room, maybe go repent to them. Maybe they don't even know about it. Maybe you, you've spoken behind their back and torn them down. And maybe you need to go say that you're sorry. Maybe you need to talk to your spouse. Maybe you're like, ah, oh, we'll do that later. Do it later, but don't let the sun go down. Try to, try to solve it quickly. And when we are angry, man, let us not sin against one another. Let's pray. So Father, I wanna thank you for the great kindness you've given us in and through the gospel. Thank you for the way that you have loved us so greatly in and through Jesus. And I pray that as we continue to strive to live our lives for your glory, that we might continue to be a people who are often repenting of sin. I pray that by your grace, you would reveal sin in our lives through your word and through one another, that we might repent of it, and that we might trust in the finished work of Jesus alone for our salvation. God, may we be a people who are constantly repentant. May we not, may we not try to look at our own perfection as a means or a grounds by which to approach you. May, may we see the depravity of our hearts and minds, the wickedness of how we still are prone and pulled to walking and loving and, and thinking in ways that are in opposition to your word. God, help us grow in godliness. God, let us put off these things and put on righteousness. Oh God, we need you. Help us in this. Help us become who we are. We love you and ask this in Christ's name. Amen.